Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm looking forward to after service being able to receive some new members in who have expressed their to commit themselves to this local congregation. Uh, we've had a few transfers as well that we haven't taken the privilege of bringing them up front, so we're going to do that. But at this time, I'm excited for this man of God to bless us this morning. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, church. Don't you feel the presence of the Lord in this place? Let me get this stuff up here. Before I make a mess, I'm going to let this stay over there on that chair. If I need to sip, I'll get it. What an honor it is to be here today. Good morning, brother. Good to see you, Brother McGarity. Appreciate you so much. What an honor it is today to be here with you and your fine pastor and his wife, Kimberly. I have come to love this couple, have known them. Sometimes I knew them from a distance whenever you were doing missionary work and a common friend of ours um, we had and still have and I learned of you through him and then also your work in the mission field did not dream that I'd have a chance to come and serve as the state overseer of Tennessee and get a chance to work with Paul Dyer and Kimberly Dyer and uh, what a joy and honor it is to be a part of what God's doing here in Tennessee and also to see what God's doing here in Alcor Melville. And uh, it's just astounding to uh, see the hand of God on this congregation that even though transition took place right before the pandemic hit the globe, and, but to see this church continue to flourish and do well in every area, in particular in the spiritual area of uh, growth and uh, growth in the Word and growth in God's Spirit, it's just exciting to see. You, uh, you could have had any pastor come and be your pastor, but I don't think you could have found any, any better than the Dyers to come and serve you the last several years. Amen. And, you know, it's, just, it's, just, it's also good to be somewhere that I don't have any business to handle. Usually, they say, well, the overseer's coming Sunday. Uh-oh. <laughs> they don't want to see the overseer. But uh, it's good to be at a place. I can just be Wayne. Uh, uh, one of the hosts caught me at the door and said, we're looking for the overseer. Are you him? I said, I'm Wayne. He said, well, we're glad to have you, Wayne. We're still looking for the overseer. I said, <laughs> it's a compliment when someone don't recognize me as an overseer. Someone told me that a while back. You don't look like overseer. I said, thank you. <laughs> but uh, what a joy. What a joy. It's good to see your children today, too, from uh, Alabama and school over there and Lee University. And um, I just appreciate so much the Dyer family. Uh, this man and this woman are who they are. They don't have any pretense. They love God. They love God's people. And they love their family, and uh, you are, you know, any good preacher ought to be able to kill a mic, you know, it, <laughs> it might be where I'm holding it, I don't know, sometimes if you hold it at the bottom, it loses its uh, connection with the devices in the back, 
said we had a common, uh, common friend. Uh, I think most of your people may know that person. I was pastoring a church in South Carolina, an old mama church, and um, had seen its better days. It, back in the glory days, it ran 500, and it had a bunch of buses, busing in children and stuff. And those days had long gone. And I went there, in a little tiny farm town of only 5,000 people, a place called Dillon. It was a county seat, and uh, about 60 miles north of Myrtle Beach. I was there about a year and a half. We prepared for it. We trained our people, uh, trained my council, trained and raised up elders in the church and and uh, they had never seen that type of ministry. And I said, we got to get ready. we got to get ready. And uh, sure enough, God moved on a Sunday night. It was phenomenal. And uh, we went into a revival without an evangelist. We didn't even have an evangelist. It's just a sovereign move of God one Sunday night. And uh, our church had grown about 350 at that time. Pretty big church in a small town. And... Uh, I asked Rodney White, my youth pastor, I said, who do you know we can get to come and help us run a, maybe another week revival? This has just exploded on a Sunday night. He said, I got a friend. If you trust me, I'll call him and see if he's available. <laughs> it kind of made me stay with me if you trust me. Uh, and uh, he called this evangelist. He was an evangelist then. He's pastoring now, still a pastor slash evangelist. And uh, Scott King came to our church. In that second week of a move of God, it was, it was something. And uh, it, it went from that point to nine weeks in a revival in that little town. When we were through, we had 287 people saved. We had 218 sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. Most of them Southern Baptist people. It was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. We had doctors and lawyers uh, poor people, all kind of uh, the spectrum of life down there. He came into the church. We had one guy, uh, he passed away this past year, Dr. Roger Rolfe. He was raised Bahia. He was in his 60s. And uh, Dr. Rolfe owned 104 chiropractic centers. Uh, he was um, uh, just a unique individual. He got he got saved and joined the church of God there. It was something. I asked Dr. Rolf one time. You know, he, he spoke on molecular structure, and he got $50,000 a speech when he spoke on that. And um, uh, I asked Dr. Rolf, I said, why did you come to this church, Dr. Rolf? And I was ready for him to say, because it's the fantastic preaching. <laughs> he said, because when I walked in this place, I felt power. Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. The church grew. When I went there, we had 230 people when I went. And that's a big church for a tiny town. And uh, we grew to average 800 a Sunday. On big Sundays, we'd have over 1,000 people in church. Yeah, it was, it was something. Scott King was there nine weeks. And I went to Europe in the middle of it, and it kept going, man. It was, it was something. It was something that God just did. It was phenomenal. And that's our common thread, Brother King. And I think you folks have been uh, exposed to Scott King. 
And uh, he is a dear friend of mine, and I love him. Uh, a little unorthodox, but I'm telling you, the cat's close to God, just like your pastor, close to God. Holds a, a master's degree from the School of Theology. He's not just some flunky. He, he's truly a man of God, just like your pastor and their family. Well, I didn't come here to do a lot of talking. Oh, by the way, Shelly sends her love. Uh, we went in separate directions yesterday. Sadly, I was in um, up near Johnson City yesterday, buried one of our pastors and their 16-year-old daughter. Had a tragedy happened. You might have seen it in the news recently in the last week or so. Uh, so Shelly couldn't go to that. And, uh, and so I stayed over last night and came to church this morning. She sends her love to you this morning, Kimberly. If you have your Bibles with you today, I'll promise you I'll not waste your time. I want to say something I believe is from God. I've already asked the pastor what time you let out. He said, two or three o'clock, be fine. <laughs> don't, don't get nervous. He didn't say that. But uh, I, I pastored 22 years, and I believe any good preacher ought, ought to be able to preach to the clock. Now, I'll go to a certain time and be respectful, but whatever happens after that's on the Lord. <laughs> but I'll stop at a respectful time. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. John's Gospel, the 20th chapter. I think it's uh, the New King James Version that's listed there for you, possibly. I'll be reading from the King James. John 20 and 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his sides. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. He said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, everybody say eight days. Again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger. Behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. 
Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Thomas was from South Carolina, by the way. <laughs> Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Let me say something before you're seated. There are not 12 disciples in the room when Jesus showed up here in John's gospel. Judas had hung himself and he was lying at the bottom of the cliff. It brings the number down to 11. And Thomas is not there and it brings the number down to 10. I want you to turn and find two people this morning before you're seated. And I want you to tell two people, one of us is in trouble. You may be seated. This morning, I want you to feel the tenseness and the anxiety of the moment. When we step into the text, there is a great deal of fear behind this closed door of that secret room. I want you to feel and even smell the fear and the consternation. You can almost taste the dismay and the confusion that's in that room. There's much controversy, a clash of opposing views. And the disciples who had been used of the Lord to affect cities and to change people's lives are now locked up behind closed doors like a bunch of little scared schoolboys. Because life had pushed them beyond their limits and they were afraid. There in that upper room in that dark retreat in that secret hiding place, behind locked doors, in fear, they said, we had hoped that he, speaking of Jesus, would have been the one who had redeemed Israel. A huge chasm, dark and deep, spanned between them and their fondest hopes about Christ. They had laid down their lives, their jobs, their careers. They had withstood the controversy of ministry. They had even given up time with their families just to be with Jesus. They were so sure that he was going to set up his kingdom that they would even debate who was going to sit at the right hand, who was going to sit at the left hand of Jesus. But all those debates became totally irrelevant because now Jesus is dead and his kingdom had shrunk to the narrow dimensions of a grave. His regal robes were now a shroud. His only throne now a blood-splotched cross. His only inaugural speech would be a lonely cry. His only reign would be six hours of torture. On a bloody tree. Now they didn't say that here, but you know, in that secret room, they were thinking all that. He's dead. He's buried. 
To them, it was the last word, the final scene. It was the horror of disaster and the agony of defeat, and they were afraid. They were afraid until all of a sudden, in the midst of their fear, poof, in steps Jesus. The Jesus they thought they knew was supposed to be in the tomb, supposed to be wrapped in grave linen, suddenly appeared in the room and he ministered a word of peace in a time of stress. He says, peace be unto you. Now look at this contradiction for a moment. There's fear and distrust and anxiety. And he walks in the midst of that and he says, peace. It's into this bleak and fearful atmosphere that Jesus comes. And it's not their faith that brought Jesus into the room. For the Bible is quite clear that they were fearful. It's important for us to understand that you don't earn God's presence just because you have faith. Sometimes God will stop by when you are faithless. When you are fearful, <laughs> when you are intimidated and insecure, and he shows up anyway. Have you ever received a blessing that you could not explain how in the world you got that blessing? Have you ever seen God bless you at a time in your life that you felt less worthy of the blessing than any other time in your life? He came to them not because they were expecting him but he came to them when they were not expecting him. And he said, peace be unto you. But I want you to notice now the sequence of the scripture. His message did not move them instantly. His message of peace. It did not bring the disciples to their knees and, and, and make them say, oh, it's the Lord. They were not changed until he showed them his wounds. You look at that scripture. And after he showed them his wounds, the Bible said, then they were glad and rejoiced. I want to tell you that ministry is more than a message. It's more than sermons. It's more than three points in a poem. It's more than explaining the Greek and Hebrew meanings of words. Real ministry is when people get to see you wounded and get to see you cut and get to see you suffer and see you still rise up out of all that and say, though God shall slay me, yet will I trust him. Real ministry only happens when you got some blood in the game. Study all you want, but until you have bled over what you believe. Until you have stood up against all hell, breaking loose in your life, only then will people be glad. For when they saw his wounds in his hands and side, then they were glad. He proved his authenticity. 
of who he was and how he loved them by how he suffered. You'll get this. See, when a bride and groom, they get together, we've seen it so many times at wedding ceremonies. They say, I take you for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Now, all that sounds real nice. Oh, that sounds real pretty, but it doesn't mean anything until you've gone through some sickness and until you've gone through some trouble and turmoil. And when the smoke clears and you still are holding each other by the hand, then legitimacy is proven through the struggle. His disciples, he said to them, and uh, talking about the struggle, he said, in a time of, of trouble, I'm a, a very present help. He said, I'm a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He said, greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but I'll go with you even to the ends of the earth. Now, the ends of the earth to the people of that day meant a very scary and frightful place. It, it meant a, a horrible place. But Jesus said, I'll go with you even to hell and still bring you out. <laughs> Have you ever considered what God had to do? <laughs> what he had to go through just to bring you out of your mess? How far down he had to reach to bring you out? Now, when Jesus stepped into the room and he showed them his wounds, they were all glad, they were all rejoicing except one of them. One of them was missing. One of them was gone. Now, Jesus had taught the disciples when he walked with them the principle of the power of the set. You might not have heard that principle before, but I'm going to remind you what the Lord, how he dealt with that. Even though they were glad in that setting that Jesus was in their midst, the value of their joy could not be complete in the absence of their brother Thomas because one of them was in trouble. Ladies, you'll understand the principle of the power of the set. If you have a beautiful pair of earrings and you lose one, you'll not wear just one. No matter how beautiful or expensive, because they are to be worn as a set. They're more valuable as a set. They complement each other as a set. Now, Jesus taught them the power of the set because he said, if you have a hundred sheep and one of them go astray, he said, you'll leave the 99 and you'll go after the one because of the power of the set. And in fact, I can vividly remember the, the woman who he spoke about that had the 10 coins uh, who lost one and she began to sweep the whole house searching and seeking for that one coin. She was not content with just the nine. It didn't look right. It didn't feel right. It sent the wrong message. It was not complete because of the power 
power of the set. Now, pastor, when I pastored that church, I had a thousand people. I pastored hundreds of church members, but it still bothered me when I lost a family or when an individual left the fold. It bothered me when I saw an empty seat or a removing of a name from the church membership role. It bothers me when a brother falls into sin and crawls into an obscure corner. Do you know what I pray? I pray, Holy Ghost, would you sweep the house? Would you sweep the house until that is lost, is found, until everything that is out of place is back into place, until everything that is missing is found, until every vacancy is occupied, until everything that is out of sink is back in the sink. Sweep the house, Holy Ghost. Sweep under the table. Sweep under the bed. Sweep under the rug. Sweep over into the corner. Sweep the house until that which is absent is found. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, but God, the Holy Spirit, is going to put his broom into your house until everything that is out of place is back into place because of the power of the set. Somebody shout, sweep the house. Go ahead, Lord, do it today. Hallelujah. Now, at this time, the disciples could not be happy. Because they had lost Judas, and regardless of Judas' sins, he had been one of them and hung himself, fell off a cliff into a potter's field. He fell. He committed suicide, and there's only 10 in the room. And the Bible goes through the trouble to specifically tell us which one's in trouble. It says, but Thomas, called Didymus, was not there. Have you ever been in church and you look for somebody that you've been ministering to all week long and the preacher is preaching exactly what they needed to hear but they were not there. One word from God could have turned their situation and their circumstance around but they were not there. What if the woman with the issue of blood had not been there that day? What if blind Bartimaeus had not been by the roadside that day? What if the Samaritan woman had not come to the well that day? But Thomas called Didymus was not there. However, when the disciples found him, they, were, they came together and they were excited to tell him what they found in that room without him. They began to tell Thomas all the things the Lord had done and what the Lord had said and Thomas, man, you should have been there. It was incredible. It was awesome, Thomas. We've never seen anything like this ever before. You should have been in that service, Thomas, but you were not there. And instead of joining into their happy fellowship, Thomas says, I ain't hearing it. I told you he was from South Carolina. He said, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails. Put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. His attitude reveals to everybody that one of us is in trouble. Now let's digress for a moment. Think about this. Think about this. Jesus has only 40 days 
to show himself alive before he's taken out and then a 10-day wait to Pentecost. He has only 40 days to deliver a message of resurrection so powerful that 2,000 years later, your pastor is going to be preaching on it in a few weeks. Listen to me. Jesus has only 40 days to bring to the nation of Israel the abstract idea that he had risen from the dead. Jesus does not have time to waste, and yet the Bible said that Jesus makes a second trip. The ten are already convinced. They are already persuaded. But Jesus comes back for one person who was struggling in their faith. He did not come because Thomas was holy. Thomas was faithless and he still came for him. I want to thank him because he came just for me. He did not have to do it, but he came for me. In spite of my unbelief, he came for me. Oh, I wish there was somebody here this morning <laughs> in this house that was grateful that Jesus, in spite of everything, came to you. When you could not come to him, he came to you. When you were messed up in your mind, when you were jacked up in your heart, Jesus Christ came to you. Now, let, let me exegete the scripture for a second. The Bible says that Jesus came back after eight days, appears and does the whole thing over again. For the audience of one. Notice the mention of eight days. The Holy Spirit is so discriminating that he would not include information that was not relative or germane to the story. There's something about eight days. Now to the novice, eight days might mean new beginnings. But I've heard of eight days before. Once God told Abraham to go circumcise his son in eight days. What is that? It's the cutting away of flesh. Again, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple on the eighth day that he might be circumcised. The Bible says that Eli had two sons, and because he would not judge or circumcise his sons, he lost his position and fell off the throne, broke his neck because he would not cut away the flesh. 2 Chronicles 29 and 17 says, They sanctified the temple in eight days of all uncleanliness. Now suddenly, I began to realize that Jesus came after Thomas because Thomas represented that fleshly part. If it was not dealt with, if it was not cut away, it would hinder the ten. It would hinder them from going on to receive what God had for them. There had to be unity because a, a few days said there'd be there one place, one mind, one accord. And he knew he had to get rid of that flesh. He knew it was enough to hinder them from being ready to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. 
So let's remember, the first drop of Jesus' blood was not shed on the cross. It was on the eighth day. In the temple, to cut away the flesh, to fulfill the law, so that you and I would not be debtors to the law. Some of you this morning are like Thomas. He didn't know it, but he was eight days away from a major transformation. Eight days away from a yoke being destroyed. Eight days away from division to clear vision. Jesus came on the eighth day. Why? Because one of us is in trouble. And what I'm trying to get you to understand is this. If one of us is in trouble, say it, preacher, then all of us is in trouble. It's interesting the Bible says Thomas, who is called Didymus. Thomas in the Hebrew means twin. Didymus in the Greek means twin. So when you called him by either name, you're calling him twin. Not that he had a twin. He did not. This one man is called twin. His name is twin. You see, you think when I say that one of us is in trouble, you think that I'm saying that one of the disciples is in trouble. But no, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about within you, one of your twins is in trouble. You see, whether you know it or not, I have a twin. He drives my car. He sleeps in my bed. He eats at my table. He wears my clothes. What I'm trying to tell you is sometimes one of us is in trouble. Now, you won't get this message this morning until you're willing to admit that there is a difference between the person that you appear to be and the person that you really are. The great apostle Paul struggled with the twin syndrome. He said in Romans 7 and 18, he said, I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, then I do it anyway. My decisions such as they are don't result in action sometimes has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight uh, in the God's commandments, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me join in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, he takes charge. Paul said that. You see, I can be smiling on the outside and dying on the inside. One of us is in trouble. That's the trouble we have with the church today. We spend too much time dealing with the one of you and not the both of you. But until we get both of you out of the ditch, you'll never be free because one of us is in trouble. 
Real ministry is not when you deal with the superficial twin, the one that everybody sees and everybody knows, but it's the one that very few people ever see. The one in hiding, that is the one that is in trouble. Real ministry is not Cain, it's Abel. It's not Esau, it's Jacob. Real ministry is ministering to, to that other twin and, and getting a word past that superficial one that's in trouble. That's why God hates a proud look because a proud look will stop you from really getting in touch with, from, with the Lord and getting a rhema word from God. You have to humble yourself like the apostle Paul said in Romans 7 and 24, oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from from this body of death. Wow. We need to pray, God, touch the real me. Touch the hurting me. Touch the me that's in pain. Touch the worried me. Touch the distressed me. I don't care who's looking. I don't care what people say. I need some help because one of us is in trouble. One of us is happily married, but the other one's having trouble with lust. One of us wants to go to church, but the other one could care less. One of us is a believer, but the other one is a doubter. One of us is in trouble. Listen, listen to me. I must apologize to Thomas because I've not dealt fairly with Thomas in the past. You see, they told me he was doubting Thomas. I've also called him doubting Thomas, but it's not in the text. Jesus never called him doubting Thomas. See, I heard a rumor about him. I helped spread the rumor. Listen, it don't matter what your background is, like Thomas's background. Everybody's called him a doubting Thomas. It doesn't matter where you come from or what men might say about you. The only person who has the right to say who I am is the I am. If the I am says I'm a new creature in Christ, then I am. If the I am says I am more than a conqueror, then I am. If the I am says I am victorious, then I am. If the I am says I am healed, then I am. Thomas, I apologize. Maybe the part that's keeping you from getting in touch with God is all this stuff people have been saying about you. People have judged your whole life, Thomas, over one moment of weakness. Thomas, you weren't always a doubter because I've read in the scripture where you said, let us go that we might die with him. Thomas said that. That don't sound like a doubter to me. Why have we given him a permanent name over a temporary situation? Thomas, I apologize. You were not a doubting, Thomas. Are you ready for it? Let me set the record straight. He was a discouraged Thomas. In actuality, Thomas is better than Simon Peter. Simon Peter denied the Lord and cussed like a sailor. He's better than Judas who betrayed the Lord and sold him for 30 pieces of silver. 
I can appreciate Thomas because he took that doubt and he took that discouragement and he dragged himself to church anyway. Sometimes you have to drag your fearful, doubting, discouraged, heartbroken self to church anyway. Because if you don't drag your flesh to Jesus, your flesh will drag you to hell. Thomas has made it to church. He's surrounded by 10 friends, but one of them's in trouble. Can I say something to someone who will identify with this next statement? You ready? Believing can hurt. It can bring frustration. It can bring discouragement. It can cause you to give everything and not see anything in return. The Lord didn't do what Thomas thought he was going to do. And so Thomas said, I don't want to ever go through that again. Don't encourage me. I tried to believe. I paid my tithes. I never missed a church service, but it didn't work for me. And now I'm in hiding because one of us is in trouble. Thomas is in trouble, but here comes Jesus right in the middle of his trouble. Glory. You thought you got up and you thought your neighbor came here today to hear some preacher tell him something, but you're about to tell your neighbor exactly why they got out of the bed this morning and came to this church. Turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor, Jesus is about to fix it. You thought nobody heard your prayers. You thought nobody saw your tears. But he is about to fix it. The Lord has sent me here to Alcor Maryville this morning to tell you he's got too much invested in you to see you quit and go down the drain. He is going to fix it. My God, I feel the Holy Ghost. He's going to fix it. Woo! Something amazing happens next. He tells Thomas, reach out your finger right here and touch my hands and put your hand into my side. How did the Lord know what to do to make Thomas believe? Eight days earlier, Thomas said, unless I see his hands and the marks made by the nails and put my hand into his side. I'm preaching to somebody this morning. Jesus is going to show you where and how to touch him. So you'll be empowered to serve him. So when the devil comes against you, you can say, I know for myself that my Redeemer liveth and that he is able to deliver me. Jesus said to Thomas, reach out. Stretch out. Extend your hand to me. 
I want somebody to do that right now. Stand to your feet. God is going to do something this morning when you touch him that will cause you to never doubt him again. Holy Ghost, breathe across this congregation because one of us is in trouble. There's a miracle here today for you. There's a miracle here today for you. Brother Doherty, does God still do miracles? Absolutely. I was in the Daney Church of God months ago. Nearly 400 people in church that day. I've always heard of a lame man walking. In the middle of my sermon, a man in a wheelchair that came in not under his own power. Jumped out of that wheelchair and ran around that church in the middle of my sermon. It was like a bomb went off in that place. Does God still do miracles? I was in the Clinton Church of God a few months ago. And sometimes, I don't know that I'll do it today. I don't know. I'm not trying to prep the congregation, by the way. I, I, I don't do carnal stuff like that. If God's in the house, he's in the house. If he ain't, he ain't. But as sometimes, the Holy Spirit leads me. And we, we had a wonderful altar service. It must have been 80 people in the altar that morning. And, and the Lord just had me work around and begin to pray for people in the cleaning church of God. And I worked around the back and praying for people while people were still in the altar. And I got over here. There was a mother who had her arm around her little son. I felt led to go to that boy, the little boy, and I prayed for that boy. I didn't know them. And I prayed for him. I didn't realize it. He looked like he was, he was about that tall. He was 13 years old. He was a dwarf. I didn't know that. He was seated by his mama. He had, he had never spoken. She had spent thousands of dollars on speech therapy. I prayed with that child. I didn't know any of that. I just, I just felt led to pray for it. At the end of the service, a little later, he, the boy got up and came over to the band section and picked up a guitar and held it up to, to the pastor. And the pastor said, play it, son. And that boy got that guitar and he said this, Welcome, Holy Spirit. We are in your presence. Fill us with your power. Live inside of me. Whew. Today, I have preached to somebody, and I have told you what the situation and circumstance is. I have told you that I have a twin. I struggle with him. There's somebody here, you've been smiles on the outside, but hell on the inside's been raging in your life. I was in Alabama two months ago. I don't know why I was there except for this lady. I gave an altar call. I got the text on my phone. I, I could read it verbatim to you. That, that week late, next week, the pastor he texted me. He said, there was a first-time visitor lady, a lady that was Catholic. 
did not know Pentecost. The first time ever. There's 700 people in that church service that morning. And he said, when you gave an altar call, she said she don't know why she found herself coming to that altar service. She wasn't of our faith. I don't remember telling this woman that. I remember the woman, but sometimes Scott King learned me this. He said, he said, tongues are a miracle of the ear more than they are a miracle of the tongue. Did he ever say that to your people? I don't know if he told you all that. I began to research that. People tell me, Brother Doherty, you preach so-and-so. And I said, I did? Why didn't I say that? From here to there, God allowed him to hear. It was a miracle of the ear. He, she told the pastor, he texted me this. She said, I don't know why I came down. I'm Catholic. She said, but that man, I'd never been to that church before. One time. That man leaned over and whispered in my ear, what happened at the, at the womb? Today, God has changed it. I would never tell a strange lady anything like that. I'd never. I'm a southern gentleman. I wouldn't do that. She claims I said that. But that's not the remarkable thing. She said, Pastor, I was given up at birth. And I've carried around all my life this pain. That I wasn't worth anything. She said, today, that preacher said that is like a load come off of me. You're here today. You have smiles on the outside. You have a struggle on the inside that nobody knows about. Come here, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. When everybody sees your smiles, nobody knows your struggle. Just come and stand. Just come and stand right here. I feel the Holy Ghost preacher. Everybody thinks they know me. They don't know what I battle. They don't know what I struggle with. The hurt and the pain. Anyone else? Anyone else? I'm going to pray in just a moment. Come on. Just come stand. Just come stand. Today's your day. God, touch the real me. Touch the me nobody knows. I want everybody in the altar that's here, just take a step forward. Take a good step forward. I want to make room. Now I need some prayer partners to come stand behind these. Come on. Come on.
at your name, peace. Bring it all to peace. The storm surrounding me, let it break. At your name, still. Call the sea still. The rage in me still. Every wave at your name, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus, you silence me, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus.
is wow amen what a powerful message what a great word from the Lord thank you so much Bishop for blessing us this morning we are so thankful um, can we let him come back again all right I'm going to ask uh, because I know that some of you guys is lunchtime I'm, but so let's we'll be we'll be quick in this but I I don't want to blow through this because I believe this is a special moment when somebody says, Pastor, I want to be committed to this congregation. And say, I want to, this is where I want to be a place to serve. And, and so to me, this is such an honor. And so I, I know that uh, the Richmonds have, have said, if you guys will come. Howie and Mary. Yeah. No, you're not. You're not alone. I just, I just called you by name. <laughs> Timothy, come on up here, buddy. I know that um, 
Megan has been leading our worship, and, and she's, we've sent for their transfer a long time ago, but never have done this process in front of you guys. So we're just going to add them into this process, or her and Joshua and Mr. Ben. I think, um, I think they've gone, yeah, Miss Candy. Come on, Miss Candy. Candy has stepped into our children's ministry, and, and I'm so excited for what the Lord is uh, going to do through, through her and the team that she is putting together. My pleasure, guys. This is a, a, a great moment for me because I've already seen the Lord use you and already seen how uh, you have jumped in. I'm super thankful for you guys. I'm going to stand over here so that thing don't just uh, glare off of my bald head. So... <laughs> And, and that way they can see you better. Is that right? Uh, so just a, a few questions uh, that I'd like to ask. It says, you realize in presenting yourselves for membership that you are assuming a solemn obligation, and it is expected that you will always be true to your promise and faithfully fulfill and discharge your obligation as a loyal member. You guys understand that? Yes. Good deal. Do you publicly confess and testify that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Yes. Amen. I like your enthusiasm, Ham. <laughs> Amen. Are you willing to work in the light of Scripture as it shines upon your path? Are you willing to abide by and subscribe to the disciplines of the Church of God as outlined by the Scripture and set forth in the minutes of the International General Assembly? All right. Are you willing to support the church with your attendance and your temporal means to the best of your ability as the Lord has blessed you? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> do, you agree, do you agree to be subject to the counsel and admonition of those who are over you in the Lord? Amen. By, okay. Now, it, it always asks this question, I don't really, you know, like to say it, but uh, is there any legal um, objection to these folks joining the church? Don't make me look at you mean. <laughs> anyway, by the authority that's given me by the Lord Jesus Christ, by, by the Church of God, by our state overseer, uh, it is my pleasure to welcome you as members of the Alcoa Maryville Church of God. God bless you guys. Amen. 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 These guys are going to play another song. We're going to dismiss with you coming and giving them the right hand of fellowship. And so as these guys play one more time, if you'll make your way down and welcome these guys as a part of Alcoa Maryville.